Who's next? Indeed, that list trims as we go along throughout the course of the season and those really exciting 4 and 0 and 5 and 0 starts trail off to 5 and 1, 5 and 2 and then um yeah, the the room gets a little quieter at that point. <laughs> Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years. We've had a podcast since 2007. That's this. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. The only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We are here every week all season because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write Around the Nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, week seven, another big week in Division Three football. You were at a big top 10 game this week. Other critical matchups in conferences across the nation. We're going to talk about a whole lot of it here on episode 12. Episode 12 of season 17, ATN podcast 338. I had someone on the sidelines at the River Falls game on Saturday say, see, it did turn out to be a good game because you were here. And I said, no, I was here because it was going to be a good game. And that's what uh, we got in River Falls, Wisconsin, where UW-Whitewater beat River Falls by the score of 21-14. to We will talk about that game extensively. We will talk about some of these midseason reality checks. Teams whose fans may have had reason to hope and dream off to a great start but had those dreams set aside this weekend. We'll talk about those, and of course, we will hand out game balls. We'll do our stat of the week, and we will go through region by region and do all the things we do in a normal D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We'll talk with Jace Rindle. He's the head coach of UW-Whitewater on Fast Five, coming up in just a little bit as well. But this is the time where we want to thank our sponsor for this week's podcast, and that is our friends at D3Photography.com. These are the folks who we hire out, basically, to go and uh, shoot Division Three football, Division Three sporting events all across the country and whose work we make copious use of on our website. Greg, of course, it was only a couple of weeks ago where you did your annual re-ranking of the conferences in Division Three football. That is one of those projects where I am going to go through and I'm going to draw only d3photography.com photos to use in that project. And I had plenty to choose from. Yeah, I appreciate that, Pat. The Around the Nation conference rankings deserves only the best photography, and you get that from the crew at d3photography.com. Those guys are out there. Each and every Saturday, they're getting professional images of games around Division Three football and other Division Three athletics events. I hope our listeners have seen some of that great work. You talked about it in Around the Nation, also on our site, in our wrap-ups, in our scoreboards, and we're pretty much anywhere we use images uh, oftentimes comes from d3photography.com. In addition to some of those images that you've seen on the website this week, Pat, there are 169 images from the Greensboro-North Carolina Wesleyan game and the exciting finish there that was a 34-28 North Carolina Wesleyan win. The D3 photography crew, they're all over, not just in the Midwest. They're capturing images of your favorite teams and players. If you're a fan, alum, parent, or student athlete, and you're looking for high-quality professional stills from those events, you can get some at dphotography.com. As an added bonus, Pat, listeners to our podcast can get 10% off of their order at d3photography.com by using the promo code D3Football when they check out. Pat, I think that means the more you buy, the more you save. Mm, I'm pretty sure that's exactly how that works. And you can find photos from games from this week. Some of the ones we're going to talk about, like UW-Whitewater versus UW-River Falls. You'll actually also find a UW-River Falls, UW-Lacrosse women's soccer photo gallery, by the way, that was shot a couple of hours after that football game ended. You've got Whitewater River Falls. You've got Randolph-Macon against Bridgewater. You've got Aurora against St. Norbert. I think that's the first time that uh, the D3 photo guys have seen Aurora this season. We use that on our 
front page on Sunday with the new Top 25 poll. Bethel against Augsburg also covered Brevard and Methodist and then NC Wesleyan and Greensboro, as you mentioned. Go to d3photography.com, use the coupon code D3Football, get 10% off, and thank you to d3photography.com for sponsoring the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast. Okay, so we start off Saturday at River Falls, probably the biggest matchup of the 21st century for UW-River Falls football, and it starts out, I think, much like it was going to look on paper. I'm going to talk a bit. I hope that's okay, Greg. You have the floor, Pat. All right, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so Caleb Blaha runs on the Falcons' first four snaps. He breaks one of those loose for 20 yards, gets into whitewater territory, then is the beneficiary of a pass interference call, but... It turns right away. A give to the running back goes nowhere. Blaha ends up passing on second down, third down, and fourth down from the Warhawk 32. One of those passes just floats past a leaping Luke Kush in the end zone. River Falls is a significant wind at their back in the first quarter. Third down and fourth down passes are knocked down by Kyle Koblinger. Whitewater gets the ball back, and it's you know methodical, successful. They convert a fourth down at the River Falls 45. They get knocked back by an unsportsmanlike call against Alec Ogden, quarterback for the Warhawks, but they get all those yards back on the next play and more. Tamir Thomas then turns a short pass into a big gain. Ogden eventually runs it in himself from six yards out to go up 6-0. Kick into the win goes just wide to the right, and it's 6-0. But this drive takes 7-19 of the first quarter. Big number for the Warhawks there on that first sustained drive. So... River Falls gets the ball back. Blaha throws an interception. Whitewater comes down, scores another touchdown. This is a slant over the middle to Tommy Coates. Whitewater goes for two here and fails. Goes for two at the beginning of the second quarter. So it's 12-0. River Falls turns it over again. Cole Yoakum, the uh, defensive lineman for Whitewater, he picks it up and he rumbles 32 yards into River Falls territory. Whitewater tacks on a field goal and it's 15-0. So my question at this point is basically just, whether Whitewater had shot itself in the foot with those failed conversions because they'd had a pretty successful first quarter and a half, but only 15 points to show for it. And then Blaha comes back. He gets his team on the board, makes it 15-7. A nice touchdown pass to Mason Van Zeeland where Van Zeeland broke on it just at the right time, hauled in the pass in the corner of the end zone. And then, Greg, you know, Whitewater comes back to score in its first drive of the second half. It's 21-7. River Falls later has goal to go at the eight. Koblinger breaks up another fourth down pass on the goal line. Riverfall scores at the beginning of the fourth after an Ogden fumble. Whitewater keeps the ball again for the next seven minutes. Frankly, you keep waiting for Blaha to be Blaha again. But the Whitewater defense is instead the one that's the Whitewater defense. They really assert themselves. So Blaha gets 100 yards on the ground, but he's got to run 30 times to get there. And he completes just 15 of his 35 passes, and that is the big difference in the 21 to 14 Whitewater win. Yeah, I've got to agree that the Whitewater defense is the headline here from this game. River Falls, they're a high snap offense. They run a ton of plays. They're often over 90 offensive snaps in a game. Whitewater limited them to just 70 snaps, by far a season low for River Falls. River Falls, they didn't get much going in the way of big plays. They had a season low in total offense and possessed the ball for just under 22 minutes. And as good as Whitewater's defense did against Blaha while he was on the field, the very best defense against him is to have him watching on the sideline. And that's where he spent nearly two thirds of Saturday's game. Chatted with River Falls coach Matt Walker about the game. The first thing you got to do is understand that all the long term goals are intact. You know, the opportunity to win the league, the opportunity to go to the playoffs, the opportunity to do the, you know, the stuff that, that's way out there that you want to accomplish is all still there. You just made it a little tougher on yourself. In this league, you know that every week's a battle. Um, I give a lot of credit to them. They played so well, you know, and so I, I, I want to be careful saying that first. We just didn't play well. You know, I don't want to take anything from them, but offensively, it's a struggle we're not used to having. And again, some of the credit obviously goes to them. But, um, you know, to not get Caleb loose on the run game was, yeah. was a tough, you know, obviously changed us a little bit. Had some opportunities early, you know, to, to, to really take the lead. And when we didn't hit them, and, and then, you know, the day got a little hard for us. But I thought defensively it gave us a chance all day. Pretty impressive what our defense did. But a lot of credit to them. But we'll be fine, man. We just got to bounce back. And, and in this league, anything can happen. It's like you, you wouldn't be surprised if the winner of this league loses two. Like, you know, crazy stuff's going to happen in this league. All of this is mathematically true, right, Greg? I mean, 
coaches are fond of saying we still have all of our goals in front of us. And that's absolutely true for River Falls. It is, unless one of those goals was to beat Wisconsin Whitewater. That's off the table now, at least for now. Maybe, maybe they'll get another shot. You never know. And Coach Walker is exactly right. Anything can happen in this league. Uh, they are not out of the title chase by any means. They still have a game left with lacrosse. They can force a lot of weird things at the top of the of the standings there by winning that game and winning winning out. So uh, Wyack far from settled, although you know lacrosse the lone undefeated team remaining in conference play. But um, everything River Falls wants to do, like he said, still in front of them. They can still win the league. They can still qualify for the tournament. They can still win a championship. Really, if if uh, the chips chips fall in the right places for them right so i mentioned earlier there was a women's soccer game that followed uh, a little over an hour after the end of the football game because women's soccer field had taken too much rain the day before pretty rainy up here in the upper midwest so the reason i say this i didn't have a chance to talk to any whitewater players but did get a chance to talk with chase rindle cornered him before he could leave the field and i think they even brought the soccer net out around me while i was talking to him see you all met you all met you all met Fast Five here on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Jace Rindle, victorious head coach at UW-Whitewater. First off, Coach, congratulations. A hard-fought win for you guys at uh, River Falls. Thank you. Couldn't be more proud of the players and the staff. Just a heck of a week of preparation, and uh, saw us find a way to execute and get it done today. It can't get more intense, right, to you know face someone who's highly ranked in your conference, and then you also do it coming off a loss. Not to live in the past, but last week we weren't ready, and that's on me. Didn't have the guys prepared for the game. Uh, this week, tighten the screws, focus on details, focus on fundamentals, and uh, take it one day at a time. All right, you guys uh, did a really good job, I think, defensively, especially on Blaha. Forced them to make a couple of mistakes, which I don't know is necessarily characteristic, and kind of I seemed like you contained them in the run game a little bit, too. Yeah, I mean, we've we traditionally kind of hung our hat on the D-line, and, yeah. and they showed up today. Uh, that quarterback, Blaha, oh my gosh, is he good? I hope he graduates, but I'm guessing he's coming back because <laughs> heck of a team, heck of a program. This thing's special up here in River Falls. They're building it. Uh, we just got to make sure that we um, don't get too comfortable, keep pushing this thing forward. I got to ask, do you have a different card than everyone else? You're going for those two-point conversions after that miss right away. Yeah, that quarter. was the game plan. We felt that if our offense was rolling, we were going to try to put two on it, try to steal a possession. It actually did the complete opposite and uh, just referenced details and fundamentals, and we were bad in that area. So a lot of slot, a lot of things to clean up, but uh, never going to lose the thrill of victory, and, and we're going we're gonna to enjoy this one for 24 hours. Tell me about Ogden. I thought Ogden looked pretty good today, but I thought he ran the ball really well today too. Yeah, he's a special individual. Uh, I think he's still trying to get comfortable within the office offense as it's his first year. He's a very competitive person. He's a coach on the field, savvy, smart. Uh, he's a special player, but uh, we, yeah, we, we're going to lean on him. He's got to be better than he was today, but uh, at the end of the day, we found a way to win. Proud of the guys. All right, let me ask you. You're about a little more than halfway through your first season as head coach at UW-Whitewater. Give me your grade for yourself. B minus. What are you looking to improve on here in the second half of your quote-unquote freshman year? Discipline. Uh, I mean, we should have made a field goal at the end, but we get a, a per, we get a, we do something dumb, lack yeah. of discipline, and it kicks us out of field goal range. So we got to just tighten the screws. We got a lot of young guys out there, not as an excuse, but they need to grow up. They need to seniors need to lead, uh, upperclassmen need to lead. We just got to keep getting better. You're a pretty fiery guy too. Were you? Did you know that that was going to be your personality as a head coach here? I mean, I was on the sideline with Coach Leopold, and for how many years that was? Four years, and it's just kind of my 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 niche, I guess. I'm an enthusiastic person. Some may say it's emotion. I would say nope, it's enthusiasm. And uh, you know, Coach Bullis would always say players reflect you. So, trying to bring the juice, trying to set the tone, be the standard, and. Um, just just help help this team as best as I can in any way that I can. I think people who talked to Coach Bullis, and I'm sorry to sidetrack for a second, off the field didn't get that impression of him, right? But if you watch him on the field, if you watched him, you know, talk to guys in the locker room afterwards, you totally felt that. Yeah, Coach Bullis is a special man. Love that guy. We talk weekly. Uh, huge influence on this staff and this team. And we were. I'm very fortunate to be the leader of it, but I'm fortunate that we had him to lay this foundation and then we can build off of it. I know this wasn't your home game. This is my first chance to talk to you after last week's home game. Talk about what it's like to have 20,000 plus people in your stadium for a game like that. Special, uh, Whitewater special. 
the support, the community support, the surrounding communities. Um, I mean, for our players, for our coaches to be able to compete in that environment is special. And uh, I say that because anybody that's listened to that, you're going to get that once, twice a year. So mm -hmm. uh, we're very fortunate for our support at Whitewater. And uh, I love to be a Warhawk. I'm not a big X's and O's guy, right? So is that, are you, are you spying on Blaha today? Is yeah. that what, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. We, we yeah. took the space out of their offense. He's a rhythm quarterback, right? He wants to catch, feet, throw. You give them space. They're too good schematically. They're too good talent-wise. you got to take the space away. And that's what we did. Yes, you invite 50-50 balls. They caught two of them, I think. Yeah. I think we picked off maybe one, and then we defended one at least three, four. Yeah, right. So last week, you can't get too low. This week, you can't get too high. Obviously, you already said celebrated for 24 hours, but then what? On, on to the next thing. I mean, that that's we're a process-orientated team. I know that's cliche. That's how we operate. When I interviewed with you in the whenever the summer, nameless gray face, nameless gray face. That's, that's right. how you approach it. Whoever you're playing, it doesn't matter. It's about you. It's about your preparation. It's about the attitude and the effort and your coachability that you bring every day. And um, I mean, it's about growing, it's about improving, and it's about one day at a time, but doing it you know, with, with some intensity, with some enthusiasm, some urgency. Oh, B minus. Uh, definitely no great inflation happening there, Pat. This is what Wisconsin Whitewater has done in 2023. They have won at teams currently ranked number eight, number 14, and number 23. They won at home against the number seven team by 28 points. They have a fifth win against the team receiving votes. And the only blemish on their record is having lost to a walk-off 51-yard field goal at home to the number four ranked team. So let's take a moment just to appreciate exactly what Whitewater has done here in the first six games of their season. The only time you can see a team grind through a stretch of games like this would be in the postseason. And even then, you don't really line up that many elite teams in a row. So five and one through that stretch is so impressive. And I would grade Whitewater's season way higher than B minus so far. Yeah, the season for sure higher than a B minus. If Coach Rindle wants to knock himself for things like he talked about, like, you know, a little bit of lack of discipline, right? Uh, maybe some play calls he would have done differently having a couple of weeks to think about them. That's certainly fine. But uh, he is not holding Whitewater back at this point. Uh, there are very few things that are holding Whitewater back right now this season. We talked about teams getting these kind of midseason reality checks. One of them was a game that we've been waiting for. We didn't know we had to wait for this game, Greg. I don't think we knew at the beginning of the season that Wash U against Augustana would be a big deal in football. Often, this is a big deal in the sport of men's basketball at the Division Three level. But this year... Augustana, back in week four, went up to Wheaton and only lost by seven points. And there was a question was, is this a real thing? Is this something that Augustana is doing? They beat Carroll close at home. And then we were waiting for this week against WashU to get kind of the next level for these guys, right? We know they're not going to be number one or number two in the CCIW. We know they're not going to be number two because they've already played Wheaton. And we assume they're not going to be number one, but they don't play North Central until week 11. This was the game, Greg, where there was a little bit of a chance for there to be a differentiator, a chance for uh, the Wash U team to live up to its unbeaten season so far, or for Augustana to kind of take the mantle as that next team up in the CCIW, and Augustana did it. They did. They won 35-17 to 17 on the road in St. Louis. Really impressive result for Augustana. Wash U, they've sort of separated themselves as the third best team in the CCIW over the last few years. They've played in the first two uh, Isthmus Bowls as the CCIW representative. Augustana now has the inside track to the Isthmus Bowl berth out of the CCIW having defeated Wash U, and this is, you know, a step up that I think a lot of Augustana fans have been waiting for for quite a while here in the in the Steve Bell era. So um, really important result, I think, for Augustana to step up and break out of that mid-pack of the CCIW and up into that top third, uh, which I think for right now, this season, I, you have to say that they are in that. And, 
you know, we can say, you know, the week 11 game against North Central, probably a long shot for Augustana to win, but presuming they win until week 11, they're going to go to that game with a chance to play for a share of a conference championship. I'm just going to say, so that assumption that this was a game for the uh, for the birth in that bowl presumes that Wheaton goes to the playoffs, right? Uh, Wheaton may end up being the uh, the top runner-up available for a postseason bowl bid out of the CCIW. But if you go back and look through the Augustana files, right? I mean, of course, you go all the way back to the four consecutive national championships back in the 1980s. That is something that nobody has been able to even match, let alone surpass uh, Whitewater has had a shot at it. Mountain Union has had multiple shots at winning a fourth consecutive championship. Nobody able to do that. But it's been a little while now for Augustana, right? The last playoff bid for Augustana is 2005. They won the CCIW. They went undefeated in conference play. And in the time, in the era where North Central has taken the reins of the CCIW, has been you know a team that has moved into the top echelon, now into the top spot, basically, uh, you know, multiple seasons running. Augustana is the one that took a step back. They had a number of 500 seasons. They went two and eight once. They went one and nine back in 2017. Shortly after Steve Bell was hired, he came on starting the 2016 season. But back to respectability, six and four a few years ago. Played a couple games in the COVID year. Then they were five and five in consecutive seasons. This is a this is a breakout, an opportunity to go eight and two. Um, of course, obviously, mathematically, an opportunity to go nine and one, but a realistic opportunity to go eight and two. That's a big deal for Augustana. It is. And I do I do want to correct myself. I, I made a presumption that Wheaton uh, would be in the NCAA tournament. I do not know how those pool C bids are going to be given out. We do not know that yet. There's no advanced knowledge. <laughs> we do not know if we knew how the season was going to end out. We would be playing the lottery, I assume. Yes, no, Wheaton will. Wheaton will have to sweat it out through Pool C just like everybody else. And it could be Wheaton in, in the Isthmus Bowl as a CCIW representative. But Augustana, if a second CCIW team makes the makes the NCAA tournament, Augustana would, would presume to be in the Isthmus Bowl uh, with a chance to win that thing for the CCIW for the first time. In the Mayak, had a battle of conference unbeaten teams on Saturday, as St. John's played host to Carlton, Carlton came into the game, of course, unbeaten overall at five and zero. Narrow wins against Hamlin, Concordia, Moorhead, St. Olaf. I don't mean to rag on the Knights here because this is what the Knights have been doing over the course of the last couple of years. They are, you know, in position to be competitive in a pretty good league. Last two years, they've gone seven and three each of the uh, last two years, and that's certainly a potential way for them to finish this year. But if you thought that there might be, you know, an opportunity, I guess, for Carlton to knock off St. John's, St. John's did not brook any of that. And in front of 10,447, they jumped out to a 21 nothing lead in the first 11 minutes, and the final was 63-7. to Yeah, I think an important maybe an important statement for St. John's. I think we've been talking about St. John's kind of ho-humming their way through a couple of games that we thought they might win a little more convincingly than they did, but they came out and really handled their business against an undefeated Carlton team. And so maybe positive steps for St. John's as they look forward to the back half of their schedule and, you know, get ready for an MIAC championship game looking ever and ever more like that will probably be a rematch with Bethel for the MIAC conference title. Bethel handled Augsburg on Saturday in pretty convincing fashion and is in the driver's seat in the skyline division in the MIAC. Now St. John's in the driver's seat for sure in the Northwoods division of the conference. Another game that uh, looking at from Saturday, we talked a little bit about Kings earlier in the season. Kings got handled by Delaware Valley. Lebanon Valley's just sitting there unbeaten in conference. They'd lost to Franklin and Marshall in the season opener, but this was an opportunity for Lebval to step up and work their way into this conference hunt, especially since Lebval and Delval play in the Battle of the Vowels. We'll call it the Battle of the Vowels uh, coming up next week. And also, big week 
at Lebval for head coach J.R. Drake. Drake had taken over on an interim basis at the beginning of the season, had his interim tag removed during the course of the week, heading into this weekend game against Kings. And this was a game that was a game for quite a while before Kings came on, scored a final touchdown to kind of put it away and win 35-21. Maybe we were hoping to see a little bit more of this Kings a few weeks ago against Delval. Maybe would have made that a little bit more exciting than it was. I don't know if it was the weather or Delval's defense that got Kings in that week, but Kings playing a little better now. Got a big win against Lebval and... You know, the Mac seems to be still controlled by Delval, despite all reports to the contrary. I know Delaware Valley has had a couple of new guys take spots in the offense, even over the course of the past couple of weeks. And we'll see how that plays out on a Saturday when they host Lebanon Valley. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. Time for game balls, and my game ball is going to go to North Park cornerback and return man Juan Nieves. So North Park is four and two this season. That's the first time that North Park has won four games since 1993. We previewed this possibility for you on last week's podcast, did we not? Nieves certainly played a big part in that on Saturday. So Illinois Wesleyan is leading the North Park Vikings 12 nothing. Then Nieves takes the ensuing kickoff, and it went a little bit like this. This will be Nieves from his own tent coming up the middle. Veering to his left, still going. Hasn't been touched yet. He's to the 40. He's to the 30. The 20. The 10. Touchdown, North Park! A quick survey of the field reveals no yellow laundry on the turf. On 90 yards. Kickoff return for a touchdown by Juan Nieves, and the Vikings are on the scoreboard. Longtime friend of the site, Greg Sager, on the call for the Vikings Sports Network. This sparks the crowd. You can hear it in that clip. Sparks the North Park sideline for sure. Nieves later intercepted a pass out near midfield to stop an Illinois Wesleyan drive, and he finished with seven tackles, two and a half tackles for loss, the sack, the interception, fumble return, and two pass breakups as the Vikings went on to win 20-18. to Saturday, Middlebury knocked off Trinity 20-15 to in a matchup of top NESCAC squads. The Panthers held Trinity to just five field goals in the game, and a number of Panther defenders could get game balls, but I'm going to give my game ball to Middlebury senior linebacker John McCool. McCool had a career-high 13 tackles, eight solo, also a career-high, one tackle for loss, one pass breakup, but really it was his play that did not get a stat credit that gets my game ball for McCool. On the game's final play, McCool made the initial hit to stop Trinity's Tyler DiNapoli at the two-yard line, which got cleaned up by fellow senior linebacker Kieran Sheridan. Here's how it sounded as Middlebury snapped Trinity's 15-game win streak. All right, it's third and one at the two. 17 seconds to go. Three receivers near side, one to the right. DiNapoli in the backfield. Third and one. They do give to DiNapoli, and he is stopped. The clock continues to run. Ten seconds to go. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And game over. Middlebury wins. I want to thank... SIDs for North Park and for Middlebury. Both of these highlights were password protected, but we were able to get a review copy to get a little more information about some of these key moments and bring them to you. And then, Greg, obviously uh, emotions running high at the end of that game. Sometimes I wonder, since you're playing the same nine teams year after year after year after year, I I have to think that it makes even the non-rivalry games in the NESCAC even more intense. It does. When I talked to BJ Hammer earlier for Around the Nation, he mentioned a little bit about how every single week in the NESCAC is kind of like a rivalry week because you play the same teams every time. And most of those series are now 90 and 100 or more games old. So, yeah, it's it's very intense each and every week. 
in the NESCAC. That's not my stat. Also, not gonna be my stat. Not my stat. But that may be the most incredible stat. It's time for Stat of the Week, and I'm heading to Southern California stat hunting this week, hunting for running plays for Pomona Pitzer and finding them a little bit hard to spot. Sajan's had 10 snaps that go into the books as runs, but six of those are sacks of quarterback Nick Kim. The one that isn't a sack is on a design pass where Kim decides to scramble and is brought down at the line of scrimmage, so that's not a sack, but it's not a run play. Pomona Pitzer ran for minus 30 yards on the day as a result. I looked at some of this Skyak after dark, and there was a series late in the third where Pomona Pitzer is in a goal line situation. They're down 21-0 to Chapman. Kim pitches left to Kenry Jamison, who's brought down for a loss of a yard. That's definitely a running play. Next snap, they pitch to Jamison again, but the play is whistled dead because of a false start. Next snap, now second and goal from the eight. Another pitch to Jamison, who then throws to the end zone where it's picked off. So, like... We often talk, Greg, about option teams such as Springfield or Gallaudet who completely abandon the pass. This is Pomona Pitzer abandoning the run way more than you would expect. They abandon the scoreboard, too, in a 21 to nothing loss. I understand from you, Greg, they are abandoning those ancient scoreboards altogether and getting new ones installed. I'm excited about that. But, Greg, Pomona Pitzer had averaged 30 running plays a game before this one, but they've compiled a grand total of minus 73 yards on the ground in the past two games. The other game was a win. It was a 10 to nine win at Redlands. That is my stat of the week. Yeah. Weird sequence with the Jamison pitch outs. They ran the same play twice. And the one with the false start, I think it looked very much like they were definitely going to throw. And I think you have to bury that after you show it, but they ran it again and it went really poorly. They went through all this trouble to set it up, right? Oh, look, we're running the ball. Oh, no, just kidding. We're running it up to set up the fake on the next play. I agree with you. Once that play developed, even though he had not cocked the ball to throw it or anything, you got to you gotta toss it and come up with something else. Indeed. Pat Wayne Ruby didn't need to spend a whole lot of time on the field in Mount Union's 76-0 win over Capitol, but he did play enough snaps to catch two passes for 45 yards. Neither of those are my stat. One of those receptions was Wayne Ruby's 64th career touchdown reception, passing Mount Union legend Cecil Shorts III for number one all-time in Mount Union history. That could be my stat, but I'm going to give two bonus stats. Wayne Ruby is now the all-time leader at Mount Union in receptions, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns, the triple crown of receiving records, as it were. That is my stat of the weekend. Congratulations to Wayne Ruby on all of these achievements. No doubt we're going to see much, much more of him over the next handful of weeks. That game was the highest margin of victory ever for a Mount Union game, 76 to nothing. I'm surprised that it, there hasn't been one that's more. And yes, you're looking as if you think of another one, too. I went back and looked through the last five years or so of games. There is not another game that is 76 points. There wasn't a 77 to zero, 11 touchdowns and 11 extra points. It wasn't 77 to zero. I would say this too, folks, if you want to be considered for stat of the week, upload your box scores, upload your game stories at d3football.com on Saturday. We're doing all this research. We're digging through stuff on Saturday and early Sunday. The opportunities we have to go out and dig for things on the sites of the 30 schools that did not send box scores is a little limited. All right, we go region by region to spotlight more stories each week. And for region one, we ask, Who's having fun in the one? I'm a real wild one. And one team that has to be having fun in the one is Western Connecticut. We've mentioned them on previous podcasts, and the Wolves keep hunting down mass cack opponents. They've been doing so recently under new quarterback Keon Jones. And when I mean new quarterback, I mean like new to the position. Jones, a converted running back, took over a couple of weeks ago when Westcon defeated Mass Dartmouth. And this week he threw for 462 yards and five touchdowns in a win against Framingham State. Jones may be a little raw, just 17 completions in 36 attempts, but Western Connecticut, 4-2, and 3-1 and one to the MASCAC. Their loss is to Bridgewater State, which is the conference leader, but still 4-2 and two start, another good start for Western Connecticut, and certainly a fun season in Danbury, Connecticut. And Gallaudet has been having fun in the one, Pat. Last week, we talked a lot about Gallaudet's new visor technology, 
The Bison were featured on an AT&T commercial on national broadcast on Saturday. Very cool spot that you can find all over the socials if you missed it Saturday morning. And on the field, the Bison rallied from a 23-3 deficit in the final 11 minutes to beat Castleton 24-23. The Bison rally started with an Andre Green 91-yard kick return for a touchdown. On the next possession, Gallaudet's Andrew Suarez forced a Castleton fumble near midfield which the Bison turned into a Micah Harvey touchdown nine plays later. And now trailing 23-17 to 17 with three minutes and 16 seconds to play, the Bison forced Castleton to punt in just three plays. But the Castleton punt snap went sailing over the punter's head. After the scramble, Gallaudet took over at the Castleton 14-yard line and scored on just one play with a powerful Drayvon McCall rush to give the Bison a 24-23 lead. Castleton did move the ball all the way down to the 10 yard line of Gallaudet but their field goal attempt was pulled to the left and the Bison start their ECFC title defense with a huge come from behind win at Castleton Greg who's pulling through in the two Johns Hopkins just pulled through in the two with a 34 to 27 win at Franklin and Marshall the Blue Jays trailed seven to six at halftime and 20 to 13 in the third quarter before rallying to keep their unbeaten season alive the Hopkins rally started with an EJ Tolerico 98-yard kickoff return for a score. Hopkins also scored the next two touchdowns in the game to turn that deficit into a relatively comfortable 34-20 lead in the fourth quarter. Tolerico's 98-yard kick return is a school record, breaking his own record of 96 yards that he set last year against Ursinus. Ithaca pulled through in the two as well, and we're going to see how it goes from there. The Bombers got past Union on Saturday by a score of 17-9, to but the question is, when do they, if they do at all, get quarterback A.J. Wingfield back? Did not look good for him Saturday at Butterfield Stadium. He left the game late in the game with a leg injury. If the stories are true, and the Bombers will be without him for several weeks, they might have trouble next week at Rochester. Should be okay against Buff State and St. Lawrence. By then, maybe backup Colin Shrum will have had enough reps to make something happen against Cortland in the Cortica Jug game. Now, if Ithaca wins against Rochester this upcoming Saturday, it will have already beaten all of its major competitors for the Liberty League title, and it could win the automatic bid, even if it takes a loss in Week 9 or Week 10. Pat, what do you see in the three? Kind of interesting something I saw in the three on Sunday, Greg. I opened the Division Three Football Championships manual this week. This is like the guiding document for everything from regional rankings all the way up to how parts of the Stag Bowl are conducted. And I found in the three, the entire Landmark Conference. So we did send a note out, you know, to the powers that be, to super extra triple confirm. But with this in mind, if this is the way it sticks, there's some interesting ramifications, like a definite regional ranking for Susquehanna in the three. That's pretty obvious. Um, But maybe that means someone like Howard Payne gets knocked out of the bottom of a Region 3 ranking. When we were talking about Region 3 rankings in the middle of the week, Greg, right? We were thinking there was room for somebody at the bottom after we had all of the teams accounted for, including Bellhaven, including Hardin-Simmons. There was a spot for somebody at the bottom, but not if you include the Landmark and Susquehanna. Landmark people were pretty sure, rock solid, frankly, that they were in the two, but I never believe anything until I see it in the book these days. And frankly, sometimes, as I did on Sunday... I see something in the book, and then I shoot off a text message to ask to make sure if that's actually true. If this is the way it shakes out, the biggest impact might go to Harden-Simmons because ranking a third ASC team helps Harden-Simmons in their quest for an at-large bid. But, you know, honestly, if I'm looking at a two-loss team for an at-large bid, I'm not sure I get down to Harden-Simmons anyway. Definitely a woe uh, from that. And, uh, yeah, it's difficult to sort of find a seventh team in region three that you might rank Washington and Lee maybe. Um, But if they go and lose, you know, substantially to Randolph Macon, they probably wouldn't look good for a ranking there either. So the big impact there seems to be the bottom of that ranking and whether or not another ASC team would get ranked that would boost the at large profile of an ASC runner up. And I would say in this kind of mock-up of Region 3, we were already including both Barry and Trinity. Indeed, Pat. So what I'm seeing in the three this week is Mary Harden-Baylor continuing to chip away and look better as the season moves on. This week, the crew took care of Sol Ross State 37-13 with a balanced effort in all phases of the game. 
the crew threw for a touchdown. They ran for a touchdown. They returned an interception. They scored off of a punt block. UMHB only gained 298 yards in the game, so they're still not back to being the offensive juggernaut that won the 2021 national championship, but they have definitely steadied the ship after that 0-3 start. One more note on this one. This was the 23rd and probably final meeting between these two teams. The final series record stands at Mary Harden Baylor 23, Sol Ross 0. That series could get resumed if they both end up in the Lone Star Conference in Division 2 before all this is over, but no reason to think that uh, the outcome would be any different. And right, Mary Harden Baylor not back to being, you know, a national championship level offensive juggernaut, but they don't have to be in order to win the conference this year, and they don't have to be in order to merit the number 23 spot in the poll that they currently hold. Who is looking for more in the four? Sons, what the four by four's for? Tell you, Greg, Hiram has to be looking for more in the four right now. Spotlighting the Terriers, they are 0-7 on the season, but they seem poised to break through, certainly, after nearly doing so against Ohio Wesleyan on Saturday, 19-18. So they had lost last week to Wittenberg, 21-7. Obviously, that's not great. But it's better than what Witt did to Oberlin this week, 72-7, or what they did to Kenyon in Week 3, 56-17. Hiram did beat Kenyon a few weeks ago, but they host Oberlin this upcoming week. Terriers had their chance to win with a two-point conversion with 122 to play, but Ega Quezon-Saki was not able to turn the right corner as Drew Thornton was able to stop him for the battling Bishops less than a yard from the end zone. Not only that, I have to say Hiram is definitely looking for more if you go to their video portal there's some sort of like automated video recap that one of these ai things clearly did because it has hiram winning the game 18 to 13 there's your automated but incorrect recap that's what ai stands for automated but incorrect yes Franklin's Garrett Cora is looking for more carries because he was running wild in the Grizzlies 35 to 21 win over defiance. Cora carried 30 times for 318 yards and four touchdowns. Each of the four touchdowns covered 31 yards or more. Franklin moves to three and zero in HCAC play. Also of note here, defiance's Tyshawn Freeman had 235 yards on the ground and three scores. Freeman, went over 2,000 yards for his career in the game. Both teams combined for well over 600 rush yards in the game. I know, man, that is one week too late for me for quick hits. I needed that Garrett Cora last week against Anderson. You sure did, Garrett Cora. Now you're Division Three leading rusher. All right, Greg, who's showing some drive in the five? Mumbo number five! How about the Foresters driving in the five? The two-time defending MWC champions are cooking this season, having outscored their first six opponents 275-13 to following Saturday's 45-0 win over Grinnell. The Foresters have shut out their last three opponents, and they have not been scored on in their last 15 quarters. That is not an official MWC tiebreaker. Trey Stewart threw five touchdowns on Saturday, three to Trevor Land, one to A.J. Jackson. Yeah, he's back, and he's doing good things for the Foresters, causing headaches for MWC defensive and special teams coordinators all over the league. Lake Forest probably in good shape for the next two weeks before closing the season with Monmouth and Chicago. North Central also showing some drive in the five. Greg, showing, of course, their quick strike scoring drives. Now, they were actually held off the scoreboard on their first drive on Saturday, and that was the first time all season that anybody had stopped them on their first drive. And then here are the remainder of their scoring drives for the first half. Two plays, three plays, three plays, three plays, six plays, one play. That's one play, 67 yards. That is a little shovel pass from Luke Lanen to D'Angelo Hardy, and then Hardy cuts back, cuts up field, cuts to the right side, and then running right alongside him like he's Tracking down a fly ball uh, deep down the right field line is Luke Lane and the quarterback running all the way with him. Drive, 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 drive in, you know, kind of the Formula One meaning of the term rather than the football meaning of the term. Pat, who's got something to fix in the six? 
Linfield chose to fix something in the sixth this week, and they did so by sitting head coach Joe Smith this week. So Smith is in his 17th year now as a head coach of the Wildcats, his 30th year on staff, and he had what the school termed an incident with a game official in the week six game against Lewis and Clark. So Smith was not on the sidelines on Saturday when his Wildcats cruised past George Fox 41-13 and clinched another winning season, the 67th consecutive winning season for Linfield, the streak, which is the longest in college football history. This win on Saturday, also Linfield's 30th consecutive Northwest Conference win. Greg, I reviewed a lot of video from last week's Linfield, Lewis, and Clark game, and I did not see what happened. I did not have the ability to review the whole thing, and nor did I have an all-22 view of the Linfield, Lewis, and Clark game. I don't know what this incident was. I got to, you know, kudos, though, to Linfield for doing what they felt they had to do. Just very interesting. Interesting indeed. Also interesting, Pat, is Greenville. After a 3-1 and non-conference start, Greenville looked like a heavy favorite in the UMAC, but after two weeks of conference play, Greenville is surprisingly 0-2 after falling to Martin Luther 31-29 on Saturday. The win was the first of the season for Martin Luther, now, the UMAC can be topsy-turvy, so 0-2 doesn't necessarily take Greenville out of the mix, but there's really no more room for error for the Panthers after their hot start. We've still got Paul Garrett in the backfield. He ran for 210 yards on 23 carries, scored three touchdowns on Saturday, but that is very interesting indeed. Yeah, they could well come back and win the UMAC with a 3-2 and record because that is where the UMAC is right now. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. Time for a mailbag segment. You know how this works. We send out the alert on X, formerly known as Twitter. When we're getting ready to do this podcast, people ask questions and we take the best one, maybe sometimes the best more than one to answer on the podcast. Antion Cuff always asks pretty insightful questions. He's at CuffyCakes08. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. His question this week, how are the voters looking at Hardin-Simmons, the one that beat UWL at UWL, or the one that lost to Endicott and Endicott? And, Greg, I chose to pick this question to have us talk about a little bit because it gives us the opportunity to talk about how a voter might see a team that is dealing with a significant injury, for example, or a team that's been inconsistent or a team that has a great win and also a strange loss. I have a take, of course, but I want to let you talk first. So as a voter, I think you look at all of it, but for a lot of people, recency has a lot of, has a lot of influence. The win against Wisconsin lacrosse was six weeks ago. Now that was on September nine that that game happened 28 to 21 Harden Simmons won at lacrosse lacrosse has gone on to look very good since then. They've they're undefeated in the WIAC and up to number four in our top 25. So that is a significant result for Harden Simmons. But since that game, they've had the loss to Endicott, which was, you know, not a particularly close or competitive game. They have won two games now in ASC play, neither of which they looked great in. Um, but this week they did get Galen Glenn back uh, in their win against TLU. Harden Simmons is they're difficult to judge right now because they have not looked like a top five team. I think they were up to number five uh, when they went to Endicott and they have not looked anything close to that with or without Galen Glenn since the Wisconsin lacrosse game. So it's difficult to weigh the results versus what you're watching them on the field recently and where to place them. I have Harden Simmons this week just off of my top 25. Not just, of course, missing Galen Glenn, who came back this week and is probably still working himself into game shape, but of course, missing a couple of key guys on their defensive side as well. Cade Michna, who went down early in the game at Endicott, and Matt Mitchell, who had appendicitis shortly before leaving for Endicott and therefore never made the trip. Those guys are still uh, essentially nowhere to be found in Hardin-Simmons box scores. I think I speak for a group of voters that also looks at uh, some things like this, too. You know, so Glenn was out for several weeks with an injury. You could do one of two things, right? You could assume that the team is going to be as good as you thought they were when that guy is back. 
And then you either keep the team at that level with the thoughts that they are eventually going to live up to it again if the guy comes back and then maybe knock them down later if the guy never returns. Or you make your initial change, right? You change Harden Simmons from being, you know, a top 12 team in your estimation to a top 22 or 23 team. And then you wait for that guy to come back. And if that guy comes back, then you might, as voters do this, might automatically re-promote them to where they were before, right? If Galen Glenn comes back and is healthy and these two key guys on defense come back and they're able to play, I think Harden Simmons is still pretty good. I think you could be justified in moving Harden Simmons back up the list. News about AJ Wingfield's injury for Ithaca broke too late for basically all of our voters to consider for this week. Although they did lose a spot, maybe there are enough people to make that change. It was a very narrow margin between Ithaca and Aurora coming into the week anyway. And it only takes a couple of voters to change that around. You could do the same thing if you're thinking about voting Ithaca in the future, right? You knock him down until Wingfield comes back. If Wingfield can come back, it's our understanding that probably is not something that's going to happen, at least during the course of the top 25 polling season. You could just automatically re-promote them once that guy comes back and shows that he's healthy. But I think, you know, the answer here is, of course, there's no one way that the voters look at just about anything, right? There's 25 voters, could have 25 different opinions, but I think that's a couple of ways where you might be able to consider the Harden-Simmons resume so far this season. Thanks for the question. You can send us more questions on X. That is how we get questions as long as there's an X. Looking ahead to week eight of the Division Three football season, Greg, and it's time for games to watch. My game to watch this week will be Ithaca at Rochester. I think I probably just talked a little bit about why some of the reasons why this is interesting. We talked about it in the section about the two as well. We're going to be talking about looking at what a new starting quarterback is most likely doing for Ithaca in this game. This is a battle of an unbeaten Liberty League team, unbeaten in conference, and a one loss in conference Liberty League team. University of Rochester, just by virtue of how the schedule has broken, is still at one loss so far. And you've got your two Papantoni, Papantonises, Daniel Papatonis this past week, 15 carries for 157 yards and two touchdowns against St. Lawrence. Aiden Papantonis, six catches for 109 yards and a touchdown. I'm interested in this game because if Ithaca wins this game, they were pretty close to just putting that automatic bid in bold type for the Bombers, especially because they end with a week 11 non-conference game. So their conference schedule is wrapped up earlier than most, but I think this is a key game. It's going to be key for Region 2 rankings. There are a lot of things that could ride on this particular game, and it's my game to watch. And my game to watch. I'm staying in the Northeast as well, Pat. I'm going to Salve Regina at Springfield. Salve Regina, they've settled in quite comfortably in the new MAC as the Seahawks are off to a 3-0 start in conference play. They are tied atop the standings with Springfield. The pride, of course, they've been the gold standard in the new MAC. Salve with a win, they will hold head-to-head leverage over both Merchant Marine and Springfield and would be in a great position to win the new Mac in their first year in the league. Springfield with a win, they've still got to have navigate a game with Merchant Marine in week nine to be in a similar position, but they will be alone in first place with a win. On the spot this week, Greg, one of the things that happened in the the downtime this past week is the MASCAC acquired a whole bunch of more programs, right? We picked up Castleton State already. We knew they were going to be joining the league next year in 2024. And they picked out two more pieces of the ECFC this past week as they got Anna Maria and Dean College to join the MASCAC, which will have 12 football programs if all of these schools stay open when all is said and done. In 2025, so I want to rebrand the MASCAC as you got to be bilingual to really get this, but the MASCAC, MAS as in more in Spanish. Hopefully, the folks at the big uh, taco place have taught us all that MAS means more. So I'm thinking about the MASCAC going forward, but we're playing with this year's MASCAC, Greg, and we've done this with the HCAC. We've had an HCAC stack this week. It's going to be a MASCAC stack. I want you to take all the teams currently in the MASCAC, all the games being played in the MASCAC this upcoming week, and stack them up in order of scoring margin from largest scoring margin to 
narrowest scoring margin. All right, here we go. The MazCAC stack, we'd like to see it. We're going to have a little Friday night MazCAC this week, Pat. Mass Maritime playing at Western Connecticut, who is, as we noted, not in Massachusetts. The rest of the schedule for those of you who are sitting at home and cannot wait for us to talk through them. You've got on Saturday, then Plymouth State out of New Hampshire hosting Worcester State. You've got Westfield State at Bridgewater State. Those are two Massachusetts schools and Fitchburg State at Mass Dartmouth. Two schools in the state of Massachusetts, although Mass Dartmouth is not a member of the MassCAC system. They're in the UMass system. And that's your MassCAC schedule for this upcoming week, week eight. There's a specific page that I'm going to navigate to that's going to help me out here. Does it have Hanson anywhere in the URL? No, I'm staying in the in the D3 football universe. I am not leveraging uh, computer rankings to do this. Keep it old school. And then I'll have Logan tell me how wrong I was later. We should have Logan score on the spot also, not just quick hits. That would be a great use of the Hanson ratings. Largest margin of victory, Pat. I'm going to go Mass Dartmouth hosting Fitchburg State. I think the Corsairs will open that one up pretty big. I like what Western Connecticut's been doing. They've been piling up a lot of points lately. So I'm going to go Western Connecticut with a big win over Mass Maritime on Friday night. And then I will go with Bridgewater State over Westfield State. That will be my third largest margin. And that leaves me with Plymouth State hosting Worcester State. That will be my closest game. Plymouth State games seem to often be low scoring. From top to bottom, Fitchburg State and Mass Dartmouth. Mass Maritime in Western Connecticut, Westfield State and Bridgewater State, and then Worcester State and Plymouth State. Thank you for participating in On the Spot Week 8, 2023. Pat, this week we're going to go with just some simple over-unders with some, some of the nation's leaders in statistical categories. All right. All right. And so first... We talked about Garrett Cora a little bit earlier. <laughs> Garrett Cora leads the division in rushing. And this week, I want to know, Garrett Cora, over under 175 yards rushing versus Rose Holman. Ooh, against Rose Holman. So that's something I have to definitely think about, right? Rose Holman, of course, one of the teams in the HCAC, which has some pretty solid defense. They don't have the best scoring defense, of course, over the course of the year overall. But they played DePauw and Albion in non-conference play. In conference games, they've outscored opponents 160 to 38. I am going to say Garrett Cora under 175 against Rose Holman. There's a lot of room to be under 175 yards, right? There is, but he has two of the top three single game rushing games in Division Three this season. Under, bold move. Jake Breitbach of Gustavus Adolphus leads the nation in receptions per game, Pat. Over under 10.5 receptions for Jake Breitbach versus St. John's University this weekend. All right. So St. John's this week played Carlton. Carlton has uh, a guy, big tight end in Tensei Obono, who's a guy who had gotten a bunch of catches previous couple weeks. They held him to eight catches on Saturday for 59 yards. To be honest with you, I expect Gustavus to be a little bit more competitive against St. John's and St. John's, you know, over the course of the season hasn't necessarily had the best pass defense, shall we say they haven't always been the most successful 10 and a half catches is a lot, but I expect that uh, Gustavus is going to have to throw a lot in order to, you know, just try to be competitive in this game. So God, even with that 10 and a half receptions, I can't do it. I got to go under here as well. I, I know I just spoke a big game, about expecting Breitbach to get a bunch of catches. I just cannot take. I can't imagine him catching 11 balls against St. John's. So I'm going to go with 10 or less. And the third over and under, Jacob Bunif. He is the quarterback at Hendricks. He leads Division Three in passing yards at over 370 passing yards per game. This week, I'm asking you, Pat, Jacob Bunif over and under 350 yards passing versus Rhodes. Bunniff this past week, 23 of 39 passing for 231 yards against Birmingham Southern. 
you know, they didn't upload a box score for Hendricks against Sewanee, so I guess I'm not going to look at that box score as I uh, try to go through this right now. 350 yards passing against Rhodes. So 350 is his average, huh? His average is a little over 350. He's around 375. Obviously, this is a pretty good season for Rhodes. They are 5-2 and two overall. Five is as many wins as they had last year. If they get a sixth win here before the end of the season, which is not a guarantee. They finish with Hendricks, Birmingham, Southern, and Barry. There's not an obvious win in this group for Rhodes. But, uh, you know, a sixth win would be the first time they've done that since 2016. So this is already a pretty good season for the Lynx under head coach Rich Duncan, formerly head coach at Aurora. I'm using all this to stall and say that I don't see Rhodes giving up 350 yards to Bunniff, so I'm going under again. I am just... I'm just super doubtful, I guess. Uh, you got to really do something in order to impress me. I'm not sure what to say here. Garrett Cora, Jake Breitbach, Jacob Bunniff, all under my very generous over and under lines. All right. So last week and on the spot, of course, I challenged Greg to pick whatever number of teams he wanted. As long as he kept the team's collective point total under 100 points. Let's see how he did. Greg started off by picking Cortland. Cortland takes us up to 59 points. How you feeling, Greg, so far? Pretty good. That was sort of in the zone that I was looking for with Cortland. Maybe a little higher than I thought Cortland might get, but still pretty good. I knew it was going to be a big total. All right, up next, we got Randolph Macon. The Yellow Jackets scored. That's another 38 points. You haven't scratched yet, Greg, but that takes us to 97. And then up next, Western New England. Yeah, this doesn't last very long. 21 points for Western New England on Saturday brings us to a total of 119, and you bust. I'm sorry. Yeah, don't hit on 97. That's the rule. That is, that's That should be a rule. Last week, I asked Pat to pick Game 7 winners from three teams that entered Week 7 with 3-3 three and three records. Pat picked Alfred State to lose to Anna Maria, but the Pioneers ran away from the Amcats 46 to 20. Mm. Pat also picked Denison to lose to Wabash, but the Big Red used a late touchdown to knock off the Little Giants 28 to 24. Mm. And finally, Pat picked Trine to beat Olivet, and Trine did indeed win their game seven by a score of 28 to 14. One out of three for Pat, which, you know, given the baseball driven inspiration for the question i guess is pretty good right one out of three means you're hitting 333 and going to the hall of fame etc etc what is going on at wabash what the heck i was counting on them for this one piper deeds tough place to play aiello had a great game three touchdown catches for dennison he was a monster i just love all of the people giving you a hard time about uh thinking that worcester against depaw was going to be an interesting game Worcester, Jekyll, and Hyde this year. They've had some really good games, some really bad games, and DePaul's defense is legit. Shut them down. Had a big game. Big game this week, DePaul versus Wittenberg. Looking back at other things in quick hits, things that you actually can, you know, get scored on or score for. Our group kind of went all around at UW-Lacrosse, Alma, Ithaca, and Randolph-Macon. But nope, no upsets in the top 25. Again, all of these teams won. They didn't win easily, but they all won. So for the second consecutive week where I am just Mr. Doubtful and I say no upsets in the top 25, I hope I'm getting points for this. I hadn't seen uh, last week's update on Twitter. I got to keep picking none. That's the only way I'm going to catch up with Riley. Yes, Riley's, Riley is crushing the quick hits. Let's see, Pat. I also asked the panel to pick an upset winner. In one of the conferences that around the nation ranked 11 to 15, those conferences are, of course, the MIAA, the PAC, the NWC, the ODAC, and the MAC. And the only correct response here came from Logan Hansen, who scored an upset win from Waynesburg in their 24-0 win over St. Vincent. That's something I would have considered. Greg also asked our panelists to pick who among the teams that entered Week 7, giving up eight points or less per game, would give up the most. So... I picked Union. Frank, Logan, and Riley all picked Union as well to give up the most points to Ithaca. And the Garnet Chargers did give up 17 to the Bombers, but it was actually Endicott who gave up the most among that group of teams this week as Western New England scored 21 against the Gulls. 
as previously established in Endicott's 24 to 21 win. So points to Greg and Ryan tips for that. But LaGrange nearly stole the point from all of us. They got 20 against Bellhaven and nobody picked them. And lastly, in quick hits, I asked the panel to pick a winner and the most outstanding player from the main event in River Falls on Saturday. Greg and Logan were the only two on the panel to correctly predict the Whitewater win. I picked Alec Ogden as MOP. Logan picked Evan Antonetti as MOP. Pat, you were on site. Who was the most outstanding player from your perspective? I think we got to go with the defensive side of the ball for this game, but I think it's actually Hawk Hefner. So he was the guy, a middle linebacker, playing the spy on Blaha. And even though the stats for Hefner are still pretty good, including a sack, his value is more in keeping Blaha contained. So that's where I would go with that game. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 338, released on October 16th of 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage all season. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. And you can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. And even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alumnus about the show. Give us a five-star review and Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined because that helps other people find the show. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X. Use that D3FB hashtag. I post from at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. The podcast is written by Patrick Coleman. And Greg Thomas, production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. The theme music, this is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. You use more of his tracks, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Chase Rindle for joining us. Thanks to Matt Walker. Thanks to Charlie, who is the production guy at UW-River Falls, whose last name I do not know, but helped me track down Matt Walker in a sea of people after the game on Saturday afternoon. Keith McMillan, of course, was our OG host. He was the originator of Around the Nation, the column on D3Football.com. We're grateful for that and grateful that Greg Thomas is here as the new co-host. Not new co-host, not new columnist, but, you know, after I've been doing this for 25 years, you still maybe seem a little bit new to me sometimes. That's new. Getting to the end of the lease, though, that's for sure. And while you were reading that, I went back and read the comments from Quick Hits. Yeah, they came after me a little bit. Yeah, they did. I, had not, I did not see that until just now. You go under the radar. It was my week for Region 4. I don't. I didn't feel strongly about a lot of Region 4 games last week. That's the one I landed on. Turned out to not be as good. It's a little bit of how the sausage is made. So we used to end up with a lot of similar under the radar games, which kind of defies the fact that it's under the radar. If more than one person thinks that a game is under the radar, then it's not under the radar. So what happened is Greg started assigning us regions to pick under the radar games from. And that I think makes it easier for me because then it's just one game to think of. And I don't have to think, well, maybe Frank thinks this game is under the radar as well. So I shouldn't do it. Maybe Frank thinks that Carlton has a chance at St. John's. We were running into a lot of under the radar games that were also games of the week. And the segment got a little weird after a while. So yes, that question is more produced than the others. There you go. That's behind the scenes. Not just for Patreon subscribers. That's for everybody. That's something you get here 68 minutes into the podcast. That's not going in the show. (laughs) 